Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. You guys remember family vacations before there were iPhones and DVD players? You guys remember those? I mean, how did we get through those long hours? I mean, how did we survive, really, in the back of our station wagons? How, how did we do it? Um, no, I, I remember uh, even with our own kids, we had uh, CDs with lots of songs, and we brought books along and ways for our kids to uh, interact over the long haul um, on vacation. You guys remember also maybe when you were a little bit younger that we had these... Um, Invisible ink games. You guys remember those? We kind of fill in the little bubbles, and there was like hangman, football, base. No, nobody's saying yes. No? Those were awesome. I, I love those little games to play. How about the, the license plate game? You guys remember that? You try to find the different license plates, and inevitably it was so hard, and then you'd spot one like from New York, and you were thinking, how, how does someone from New York make their way all the way to Iowa? And what are they doing here in Iowa? And then, and then I spy, you know, I spy with my little eye, something green. It's corn. <laughs> yes. And corn again and again and again. Endless cornfields. Uh, but inevitably, the question would come from the back seat. Are we there yet? Right? Are we there yet? Multiple times, uh, depending on the ages of your kids. But I think some of us maybe here today are asking the same question as we make our way along the road of life. You see, you're, you're waiting, and waiting is hard. You're here, and you want to be there, because there seems so much better than here, right? There, you'll, you'll finally get what you've been waiting for, right? There, you'll finally get that promotion, you know, that vacation, there you'll finally get that new house or that new car. There you'll finally be debt-free. There uh, you'll, you'll finally be healthy again. There you'll, you'll finally have the baby that you've been praying for. There you'll finally you fill in the blank. Whatever there is, you'll finally have it. And so there seems so much better than here. And the trouble is, you're not there, you're here. And just like Google Maps will tell us, you got to start here before you get there. But here's the good news. God has you here for a reason. He's doing something here. Here really does matter. Because here in this time, in this time of waiting, he's doing something in you, he's doing something through you, and believe it or not, it's much bigger than you. But oftentimes here is really hard. It's uncomfortable, sometimes even painful. Like little kids in the back of a bumpy station wagon, we don't like to wait and we don't know what to do while we wait. But today, as we're going to see in Hannah's story, she helps us in these times of waiting 
She helps us to know what to do between here and there. And to know that God is doing something bigger between here and there. He's doing something in us and through us in this time of waiting. And so let me, let me first give to you just a, a little background on Hannah's situation, her here, if you will. And then I want to give you three things we learned from Hannah on what to do between here and there, on what to do when waiting is hard. And so here's Hannah's situation. Right out of the gate, we see that Hannah is in a very difficult situation. She is married to a man. Elkanah is his name. And he happens to be married to another wife, has a second wife named Peninnah. I know that sounds messed up and sinful and wrong, and it is. All right, let's, let's don't say that even that it's in the Bible that somehow polygamy was okay back then. It wasn't. This was sinful and wrong. And yet, in biblical times, it was not all that uncommon, primarily to carry on the family name and the family inheritance. Such was the case for Elkanah because his first wife, Hannah, could bear him no children. She was barren. And so it's not hard to imagine the severe tension that took place in Hannah's life. Here was very hard and painful for her. Here was filled with lots of emotional challenges. And some of you can relate. Some of you in this room have, have known the pain of infertility. Some of you know the pain of a broken family. Marital stress. Relational stress. Some of you know the pain of here and you want to be there and you're in this time of waiting and waiting is hard. And what this story teaches us is that God is doing something in the waiting. He's doing something bigger between here and there. He has you here for a reason, even though it's really hard. And so what can we learn from Hannah between here and there? What do we do when waiting is hard? Well, three things I want to look at today. So here's the first one. Expect frustration and irritation. As we wait, we should expect frustration and irritation. Look at verses 3 to 8. Now this man, this is Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So Hannah was dealt a very difficult situation. She was in a constant state of anguish. She was barren. And back then, this was even a, a bigger deal. As a woman's identity was attached to her raising a family, and still, the struggle remains today for those of you who have felt this pain of infertility. I just want to say a few things to you. Number one, you're not alone. You're not alone. Though it may feel like you're alone, um, often those who 
experience this suffering, um, feel the silence of their suffering, and it's one that's difficult to be able to speak about, but I want you to know you're not alone. You have a church family. There are probably more of us who can relate to you than you might think. You're not alone. Secondly, it's not your fault. It's not your fault that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is not punishing you in his anger for something you did in the past. He's not getting you back. Some of us fall into this kind of thinking that, hey, if I have this suffering that comes into my life, it must be because of something I did back here, and now God wants to just pay me back. No. Listen, he has taken all of the punishment that we deserve for our sin when Christ died for us on the cross. It's gone. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're not alone. It's not your fault. And God's story is still unfolding in your life. It's not the end of the story. And we've got to wait and we've got to trust that God is good and God is sovereign and even in the pain of our suffering, he's doing something in us and through us for his glory. And so, Hannah, we meet here here in the story, and, and there's a lot of pain. And the pain of infertility would be hard enough to deal with, but for Hannah, this pain was compounded with additional relational pain. We saw this here in the story. It's coming from all sides. It's coming from Peninnah, her rival wife. Look at verses 4 to 6 again. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so this went on year by year. As often as she went to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So... Having two wives, you can see the severe tension in the home. There was envy on both sides, right? Peninnah was envious of Hannah because Hannah was loved. This was Elkanah's first wife, and he, he loved Hannah so much, but she could bear no children, and so he took Peninnah as his second wife. And so you could see the envy that Peninnah had for Hannah. I'm not loved. I'm just here to make kids for Elkanah. But envy on the other side for Hannah that she could bear him no children. And so Peninnah, it says year after year, as they made their way up to the, the tabernacle to worship and to feast, this was the opportunity that she took to provoke and irritate her to frustrate her, to taunt her, to mock her. So the frustration, the irritation came from Peninnah, her rival wife. Secondly, it came from Elkanah, her husband. Look at verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, Elkanah was a good man. He, he loved the Lord, though he lived a compromised life. And yet here we see him just as an insensitive husband. He doesn't understand the depth of pain that this brought his wife, Hannah. He meant well, but he, he just didn't get it. 
And so the frustration, the irritation even from her own husband and from Eli, the high priest, in verses 12 to 14, we'll look at these verses later on, but it says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth and Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Can you imagine that? Here you are weeping and pouring out your heart before God. And Eli, the high priest, the spiritual leader of God's people, is saying, you're drunk. What's going on with you? Evidently, he had never seen such passionate prayer. She was pouring out her heart to God in tears, weeping bitterly. And Eli totally misunderstood, misread the entire situation, frustration, irritation setting in. And we can see that perhaps it even was coming from the Lord himself in verses 5 and 6. It says, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. In verse 6, an arrival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, the Lord wasn't frustrating Hannah. And Hannah, we have no indication that she was feeling bitterness towards God. And yet she did know that this was the Lord's doing. The Lord had closed her womb. She recognized this was God's doing. And perhaps she may have thought from time to time, why me? Why? Why God? And I wonder if you can relate to Hannah's experience here. In times of waiting, when waiting is hard, we have an enemy, a rival, if you will, that is taunting us and provoking us and irritating us, even as we go to worship God, saying, you know what? Nobody here loves you. You know what? You, you're just all alone. And our enemy has a way of isolating us in our suffering and frustrating us even as we're trying to seek God. We can also have insensitive family members and friends Have you noticed this? Even in times of painful grief and suffering and waiting, it's the insensitivity of even family who don't seem to understand us. And when waiting is hard, we can even feel like we're forgotten by God himself. Why did you close my womb? Why are you closing this door in my life? I don't understand. Why? And so when waiting is hard, what do we do? Number one, we should expect frustration and irritation. But not to stop there, because if we stop there, we would grow bitter. And so secondly, what do we do when waiting is hard? We should pray. We should pray with honest emotion and with bold expectation. Look at verses 9 through 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head." 
And so Hannah prays. She prays with honest emotion and with bold expectation. Guys, when we walk through a painful season of waiting, we often experience a wide range of emotions, anger and sadness and fear and and loneliness set in. And rather than trying to escape these emotions or numb these emotions, we need to be honest with our emotions and bear our souls before God. We can't keep covering up our emotions. Some of you have been doing that ever since you were young. And it's, it's crippling you. This past week, um, I heard about a uh, situation where uh, a counselor was speaking into this situation where uh, a young man, he was probably about 22 years old, has this relationship with this young girl who's maybe like 18 years old, and it's a really horrible relationship, lots of abuse, verbally, um, even physical abuse. And this counselor is, is walking back into this young man's story, and evidently when he was 12 years old, Something happened there, and he was an angry, angry young man filled with lots and lots of rage, perhaps in his own family story. And the way he dealt with that anger was to smoke marijuana. And he continued that practice throughout his growing up years. This was his coping mechanism. When he would experience the grief, the sadness, the hurt, the anger inside, that's where he would run. And so it's no surprise that here as a 22-year-old man, he's still a 12-year-old emotionally. Some of us here in this room, the way we've dealt with our emotions is we're just going to suppress them or we're going to escape somewhere else. Maybe it's through alcohol. Maybe it's through food. Maybe it's through spending. I don't know what it is for you, but I do know this. We've got to be like Hannah and in times of painful waiting, Cast our souls upon God. Notice how her prayer is is coupled with honest emotion all throughout her story. In verses 9 and 10, it says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So in the same breath, I'm deeply distressed and I pray to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Instead of sulking, she starts praying. Verse 13, Hannah was speaking in her heart. Her, only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard, but she was speaking to the Lord in her heart with all of her honest emotions. Uh, verse 15, Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. So it's not as if I'm drunk whatsoever. I'm just troubled in spirit. I'm taking all those troubles to God. One more time, verse 16. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So this is an encouragement for us in between here and there to be honest with God. When waiting is hard, don't suppress your emotions from God. Speak your emotions to God. When waiting is hard, don't suppress your emotions from God, but speak your emotions to God. Be honest in prayer. Even if you've been praying for a long time, you're receiving no answer, at least in your mind, to this prayer. Don't run away from God. Run to God. 
Guys, this is also an encouragement for us to keep showing up on Sundays. I see people sometimes in their deepest, darkest pain and grief that they just check out. Why? This is a safe place we want it to be to where you can come and express yourself to God along with a family of people that love you and are with you in this journey of grief. So, so keep coming and pour your heart out to God like Hannah. This was in the midst of worship and they were feasting and here Hannah, she's just crying out to God in her pain. So even when it's hard, keep showing up, pray, worship, with honest emotion. But it's not just honest emotion, it's also bold expectation. Bold expectation. Look at verse 11 again with me. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This is hard for us to understand. It's what's called the Nazarite vow. You can look at this later in Numbers chapter 6. Um, she's consecrating herself to the Lord and her son to the Lord. But we need to be careful here. At first glance, this seems like she's bargaining with God. If you do this, then I will do that. And some of you like to pray this way. Hey God, if, if I do this, if I, if I do this for you, then, then I want you to do this for me. But I want you to see here, as we look more closely, she has really nothing to bargain with. She's in a state of complete desperation, and she calls upon the mercy of God. Verse 18, she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. I think Hannah knows and acknowledges that the Lord had closed her womb. And so she prays to the Lord to open up her womb. We see that three times in verse 10, 12, and 15. She's praying who? To the Lord. The Lord is the only one. She knows the Lord closed her womb, so he's the only one who can open her womb. Only he is able to do that. So she's coming humbly and boldly, asking for the Lord's mercy and favor. But I want to say something here. Uh, we need to avoid two different extremes because as we look at this story and as we look at Hannah and we see her faith, some of us may think to ourselves, well, I need to have more faith then, like Hannah. And, and we think, if I have enough faith, I can convince God to give me what I want, right? So if I've got enough faith in here, he's obligated to answer my prayer. This is not what the Bible teaches. We can take passages like this one in Mark chapter 11 and interpret them wrongly. Take a look at this from Jesus' lips. He says, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. That's an important phrase. We'll come back to that. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believe that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So many use that verse and they think, well, then I can name this and then I'll claim this for myself because I've had faith. You see, I've believed enough. What Jesus is teaching us here, first of all, he's using hyperbole. 
when he talks about this mountain being thrown into the sea, he's showing us in, if we believe in God, he can do impossible things. He can, he can do all things. He's God, right? He's God over our lives. And yet, when it comes to this issue of faith, we, we cannot make the mistake that this is somehow all about us and it's contingent upon me believing hard enough. Notice what it says in verse 22. It says, have faith in God. Not in yourself, not even in your faith. It's having faith in God. It's so important we see that because there's people today who are abusing this kind of teaching and this kind of text here, and they're, they're thinking that faith is a, is a power that they possess inside of them to create their own future. So I'm just going to call out one of those guys, Joel Osteen. Here's what he says in his book, Your Best Life Now, which that has problems with it too, because if this is my best life now, this is not that great a life. You know what I'm saying? We have a better life coming to us in eternity we're looking forward to. I'm not going to get it all here. But here's the quote. God has already done everything he's going to do. The ball is now in your court. You want success? You want wisdom? You want to be prosperous and healthy? You must boldly declare your words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. That sounds really good. So be bold and declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. You can create your own future, but that's not what faith is. This is a lie. This is deception. It's very, very dangerous because it's not faith in God. It's faith in your faith. And it ultimately becomes all about you. You don't have the power to write your own future. Do you actually think that God is obligated to do for you what you've said for him to do? Who's God then? It's no longer him. You've just taken him off the throne Here's what faith is. According to the Bible, the definition of faith is found in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That word assurance can better be translated as substance. So faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, it's real. I can stand on it. I can be sure of it. Why? It's not something in me. It's something outside of me. It's not this mystical power inside of me like the force it's the promises of God outside of me that I rest in. It's God's word that I trust in. It's not my own feelings or my own faith. And so we've got to avoid that extreme. That's not what's being taught here in this passage of Scripture. But on the other end of things, some of us, we struggle with another temptation. And that temptation is to think, well, God's just always disappointed with me. You know, he's just kind of tolerating me. And he's, he is in control, so is it even worthwhile for me to pray? I mean, he's going to do what he's going to do anyway. So we're just kind of living this defeated like kind of life, and we're rarely praying and asking bold requests of our God. I love what um, we've been learning in this Enjoying God book. Uh, take a look at this quote here. This was really helpful so John Owen once said, some believers are afraid to have good thoughts of God. Is that you? I'm afraid that I'm not sure if God would love me. I'm not sure if he's really for me. He's maybe just tolerating me. 
He's a reluctant father, just like my own earthly father, so maybe I don't need to even pray about this. Guys, I want you to know you can ask boldly because you are God's beloved in Christ. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, if you've believed in him for salvation, you can come to the throne of grace asking bold prayers, knowing that you are his beloved. He loves you. He's for you. He's working all things for your good and for his glory. So my little Harper reminded me of this a while back when she wrote this to her mom for Mother's Day. I love my mom so much because she loves me better than I do love her. Isn't that sweet? We need to remember we're children before God, and he loves us way more than we love him. So you can come and ask boldly, God, I know you love me. Would you please work in my heart and work in this situation? Trusting in him. He's a good father. As the book says, we live in a fathered world. He loves you so much. So, between here and there, when waiting is hard, what do we do? Number one, we expect frustration, irritation. Number two, we pray with honest emotion and bold expectation. And number three, and finally, we surrender to God's sovereign plan. We surrender to God's sovereign plan. Look at verses 17 to 20 as we finish up the story here. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So at the outset, we said, God is doing something in the waiting. He's doing something in the waiting. And we see this in Hannah's life. She'd been praying for years, probably years after years after years for a baby, for a son. And then we we saw her pour out her heart before God, right, at the temple with tears. She's unable to even eat. And now in verse 18, it says this, she went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. And so what happened here? And part of it was she let it all out. All of her anxiety, all of her vexation, she poured out her heart to God. Some of you need to do that today. You've been holding back. Bring to him everything. Get it all out. But I think there was, there was more to it here You see, in that time of waiting and praying, I think God was changing Hannah's heart. For all those years, she had wanted a son, but now she wanted God to be glorified through her son. She had made a vow, Lord, give to me a son that I may give him back to you all the days of his life. In other words, everything I get from you, God, is yours. I want it for your glory. I surrender it all to you. It's all for you. It's not about me. It's all for your glory and your greater plan. And I think that's what's changed here in Hannah's heart and why she could walk away no longer sad. And no matter what happened, it was in God's hands. It was in God's hands. So we've got to ask ourselves this question. What is God doing in me 
as I wait on him? What is God doing in me as I wait on him? No doubt he's doing more than what our eyes can see. And surely our waiting is purposeful. Guys, I love this quote. It's by a woman named Jackie Hill Perry. Here's what she says. Listen, sometimes the miracle isn't in your prayer being answered, but in your faith being grown as you wait. Let's say that one more time. Sometimes the miracle isn't in your prayer being answered, but in your faith being grown as you wait. Let me just add this. The miracle might be not in your faith growing, but in your faith being revealed and exposed for what it really is. You may not have faith in Christ. And God is so gracious to you to allow you to experience this time of painful waiting to expose, hey, you need me. You can't keep running away from me and leading your own life. I'm pursuing you. I'm right here. Come to me. Surrender your life to me. I have died for you on the cross. You're a sinner, and I've loved you before the foundation of the world. I have died for you. I've risen again, and all you need to do is surrender and say, I'm yours, King Jesus. I want you in my life. No longer about me. It's about you, and I'm handing everything over to you today. All of it. That's faith. It's reliance upon Jesus. Not on you anymore. It's not on your faith even. It's on him. Him alone. Some of you, your world is being rocked so that God would get your attention to come to him and surrender to his son, Jesus. Guys, we don't like to wait. Something, though, tells me that God likes this word, wait. Because you see, everyone is waiting in this room. We're all waiting. Hannah didn't know this, but when she surrendered her plan to God, it was part of a much bigger story that he had been writing. She could ever, ever imagine. I mean, she set in motion a whole chain of events she had no clue about. You see, even though she was a barren and disgraced woman, she bore a son. His name was Samuel. And Hannah's name was forgotten shortly, and her son Samuel became a leader of God's people who would anoint David as king, who would point us forward to another king, the son of David, the son of God, Jesus himself, who would die for us and be raised to new life. And so Hannah's prayer is a big, bold prayer for a son, but God had something even bigger up his sleeves. I love what Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 says. Think about this for your own life. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask. So you think about the things you've asked God for. Oh, he's able to do far more than what you've asked. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so Hannah's story, as we come to a close here, teaches us what to do when waiting is hard. Number one, expect frustration and irritation. Number two, pray with honest emotion and bold expectation. And number three, surrender. Surrender to God's sovereign plan, knowing that God is doing something bigger in these times of waiting. He knows what he's doing between here and there. Let's pray.
Father, we admit waiting is hard. It's often painful. And yet we want to be like Hannah. We know that there will be frustration that will set in and irritation at times coming from all sides. And yet we pour out our hearts to you honestly and boldly asking you to come. That we might surrender it all to you and your sovereign plan. Maybe for the first time just say, Jesus, I'm, I'm done with living life for me. All it's led me into is more pride or more shame. I'm ready to rest upon you, Jesus, and what you've done for me at the cross. And I thank you that you've got a plan for me that's way bigger than I could ever imagine. And so I pray that you would help me to take these first steps of faith and to trust you for the next. Lord, we're so grateful that we don't walk this path alone. You are with us, no matter if it's hard today or things are good for us today, you are with us always, even to the end of the age. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.